This is RMIT University's Art, Design and Media podcast and you're listening to a special RMIT culture and student-produced series, Literature and Ideas. Welcome to the Literature and Ideas podcast, produced by RMIT Culture in collaboration with Bowen Street Press. This podcast is created on the unceded land of the Woiwurrung and the Boon people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders past and present. This podcast is about stories and we pay respect to the voices of First Nations people that have been telling stories on this land for thousands of years. I'm Else Fitzgerald, part of the RMIT Culture team. This series brings to you discussions on writing and ideas made possible by RMIT's cultural programs and collaborations with our key partners. Hosting this episode is Hayden Sparrow from Bowen Street Press. Delia Faulkner is a writer, critic and senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's the author of two novels, The Service of Clouds and The Lost Thoughts of Soldiers, as well as two works of creative nonfiction. Her new book, Signs and Wonders, Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss, is a collection of essays exploring and reflecting on our relationship with the natural world. In September 2021, Delia Faulkner appeared in the Melbourne Writers' Festival's digital program, discussing signs and wonders in relation to the climate crisis. This interview comes from RMIT Culture's partnership with the Melbourne Writers' Festival and forms part of a series looking at creatives responding to crises. Delia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me here. We're going to really just dive into it. I kind of want to know a little bit about your relationship with writing itself. Have you always had a natural proclivity towards it and have you found that writing is a really natural way for you to express your views? Uh, not really. <laughs> I've always had a natural bent for how words work together in languages. So I'm one of those very fortunate mad people who got to do Latin at school, which I wasn't any good at, but I love grammar. I love the nuts and bolts of how words are formed. I love writing rhythm, which is something else that actually, weirdly enough, you spend a lot of time concentrating on in Latin. I love the way things look on the page. My dad was a graphic designer so and a painter. So there's a whole set of different things I suppose I have in my skill set, but I wouldn't say that expressing myself, writing, especially anything biographical, comes very naturally at all. I also really like finding patterns in things and putting sort of different arguments or ideas together. So my degree, my doctoral degree is in cultural studies and my first job was I was teaching cultural studies. And so that sort of looking for arguments and putting together big picture stuff comes naturally. Then I have to kind of almost translate it into writing. So it's easier with nonfiction because I think that that's not such a hard leap to make it more personal and um, maybe to flow a bit better to the ear than much academic writing. But when I'm writing fiction, I love to think about those big patterns, but then I can get a bit caught up mm. in those and kind of making that leap into the extra layer of creativity that you need in writing, I find excruciating. And it's, it's the best feeling on earth. 
when you can do it, of course, but when, when you're sort of trying to achieve liftoff, it's very difficult. And so in, in fiction, I have to dig deeper for that extra sort of flow state that, you know, where you kind of concentrated but sort of slightly dissociated at the same time. And that I find really hard. I wouldn't say it comes naturally at all. But it's the it's the biggest rush in writing for me is if I can kind of hit the hole in one with fiction. It sounds almost like puzzle solving a little bit for you. And part of the fun is not necessarily in the writing itself. And I I wonder whether you feel that that contributes to your writing career. You've done fiction, you've done nonfiction, you're a reviewer, you've just mentioned that you're in teaching, you have cultural studies background. Do you feel that that contributes to this desire to explore different forms and different ways of expressing? Well, there's two things. I get bored very easily. (laughs) The other thing that I think is the great gift of academic training and especially higher research is being able to spot a gap to see where something really needs to, where you need to make a, you know, to sound very grand, an intervention or to put piece things together slightly differently. Also, because I get bored quite easily and because, like many writers, I can give in a bit too easily to despond and despair for me the motivating question is how what you know where where is there something that's missing or piece a should go together with piece b and so you know that was the attraction of writing this this current book and it's probably the most liberated writing experience i've ever had so much that i want to explore i am going to sessions where artists are meeting scientists to talk about the environment and the state of the world. And everyone's sort of, you know, people do tend to sit in their silos. We can do it as writers, we do it as academics as well. And that was frustrating me a lot. And I just thought I'm reading across all these different areas and I want to read myself a book that's going to skip across philosophy and science and literature and film and give the biggest sort of picture. And then, as, you know, what I can bring as a writer rather than, you know, with my academic hat on is I can write about feelings and I can try and be precise and put into language. I think a whole set of disquiets and uneases that we have at the moment about the fact that we may or may not be moving across tipping points where we may pass some of those tipping points there's this feeling of things sort of moving off scale and how do we talk about and think about them can we find some language also I considered my essay collection almost like a looking at different facets of this sort of moment and trying to kind of it's almost it's hard to look at front on trying to kind of catch it from a whole series of different angles to try and put it into words One of the essays in the book very directly explores this idea of what writing is in the 21st century and what writing has become as well in a way. What does writing about nature but also about society and culture mean for you in the 21st century? And do you have a sense of who you're trying to communicate to when you're writing these essays in particular? I'll start with the second part of the question. I look, you know, I feel a gap for myself generally, but I wanted to communicate with people like me who'd been thinking about this and I have the leisure of time as a writer to, you know, to sit and try and put these things together. So it's kind of for people like me who already are alert and alarmed about the current moment, but I also wanted something that was going to then speak to people who might be across the reading or across the different concept. And I also wanted to just write it for people who love essays. So there's quite a quite a series of people that I'm thinking of, of writing for 
in terms of how it's affecting the culture. So there were two things that I kept in my mind when I was writing the book. One was I did I did want to keep that beauty in the book. So I, as soon as I worked out that each essay had a fulcrum of beauty and terror and that we need to to really think about this moment of kind of almost being kind of poised between the two, but the beauty is still there and the beauty might not, not be there. So that, that was in my mind as a kind of a pattern for each essay, which just is great when you have a sense of what each essay kind of where what its sort of parameters might be. And I think that comes through in so much what you want to call cultural product at the moment. And I'm fascinated. And I, you know, again, my sort of academic background, I consider things that are coming through our feeds, the images of the stories that are coming through our feed about parch marks or about, you know, that are appearing in, in, in hunger stones that are appearing out of the earth and out of the parched waterbeds, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere uh, droughts of 2018. I see them as sort of part of the culture as well. And these things are eerie, they're uncanny, they're beautiful, but also have a lot to say to us about what's happening in the world. The other thing I was thinking about as I wrote the essays, was this idea of that great acceleration. And I kept thinking, you know, I've worked as a, a critic and a, a reviewer for 20 years or so now. And when I look back over those books, I think that there's an equivalent cultural great acceleration. And for me, that sort of really starts around 2001, sorry, to around about 2000. And the moment my mind goes to is, of course, 9-11. And I found myself thinking about... James Wood's response, so a week after the Twin Towers fall, he writes in the pages of The Guardian and says, you know, how are writers going to be able to deal with this terrible thing that's happened? But his line was that the current writers have become so intent on being sort of writing these busy novels and being entertainers and trying to write cultural analysis and do all these multiple things in these, these show-offy sort of books that they are incapable of being able to deal with a mutilation like 9-11. And I hated that piece at the time. And, you know, because A.B. Smith came in and wrote an awesome response. He wrote, tell me how does it feel? And she says, this is how it feels to me. And so I started thinking about about that but what's going on there is I thought why can't Wood see any value in these busy and, and why would he think that writers were just showing off surely if a whole lot of people are starting to write in a particular sort of way then perhaps it's more than you know, just showing off and so I started to think about how those novels they are busy and they are unstable and he calls them hysterical realism whereas I see them as novelists trying to deal with the fact that the world is becoming speedy, it's becoming complicated. Um, but also there is this feeling that they're almost feeling the weather front of all these sort of feelings that we are starting to feel now of things sort of hurrying up and fiction maybe not being up quite up to the task of dealing with phenomena that are increasingly become global and huge. And so I use that as a jumping off point for thinking, well, what did those people do? Well, they were the early turbulence of that moment and they are the precursors to all sorts of exciting books and, and film and TV and so forth that we have at the moment where the writers are thinking, well, why should a novel just take place over a couple of generations of a family? Well, maybe we can't actually capture something about the present now. What if what if we write something like James Bradley's play that <laughs> covers a couple of hundred years where we can see, you know, bigger patterns? What if we have animal characters? What if we have books in which the animals are narrators or things are, you know, alive in some way? And you just see now, I think, in, especially in the last 10 years or so, that writing's been so incredibly exciting because you know, novels have been expanding the scope. Generically, the novels are all mixed up. That upset James Wood enormously too <laughs> because you see a different sort of writing setup in a way where a whole lot of voices and a lot of people who were silenced in writing are 
are those those people starting to write books from different perspectives? We don't seem to have quite that big distinction between literary novels over here and you know, up here and mass market novels over yeah. there. There's been this terrific mixing up, which I find tremendously exciting. Do you feel like there's a distinction for you between your professional and your personal life when it comes to your response and your relationship with climate change and the ecological crisis? Or do you feel that they're they're almost blending together at this point? Oh, gosh, that's a kind of chicken and egg question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I don't like to pull the, the sort of children card because I was really concerned about all this stuff before I had kids very late. But, you know, of course you do start to measure time by your children's lives and the time my children had just turned 10, the twins. I mean, I had them in 2012. And by 2015, I think the environmental picture looks much grimmer. I really thought about it more, I think, post um, 2015 because we've just had this sense of everything's just happening at far faster rates. You know, all those windows that we were supposed to have something like 12 years or 18 years, I think, before we've maybe reached our tipping points and to be able to act in some sort of way, it's receded to, I think at the moment, it's been something like that 18-month period or, or like right now. And so that is, is the thing that motivates me, but I have to kind of keep it under control as well to a certain extent the real sort of emotional foundation for the book is you know to try and, and get something out there now I wrote it pretty fast um, especially for me very fast because I wanted it to put some more language and more concept into the into the into the debate so that sense of time that sense of accelerating and but also kind of fusing times has been very much accelerated for me by having kids because you know we're haunted by deep time in the title essay of the new book you ponder the conversation that the earth might be trying to have with us but maybe one that we can't quite process do you view literature as a means by which we attempt to translate that conversation and do you feel like it's successful or are we still limited by an inability to fully articulate what the planet is even trying to say to us that um, idea that the planet's talking to us as a sensuous easily tickled envelope comes from the the philosopher Bruno Latour and I find his writing on the environment incredibly powerful. I suppose I'm probably more trying to translate a lot of that theory. That's more the act of translation, I'd say, that my book is is doing and it's trying to integrate a whole series of different sort of siloed fields. Look, you know, my job in this book is to point out the fact that the (laughs) the earth is, is speaking. I think it's a really interesting question of sort of how to how to proceed I suppose because I think that certainly that idea of the earth and its soil and its creatures having its own I wouldn't say independent life its own life enmeshed with our life has been such a part of indigenous cultures and one doesn't want to appropriate but I think that that understanding is the again not necessarily the act of translation but that's where you find that knowledge at, at its most most profound I think my my job was to again sort of say look all this stuff's happening it's speaking we are doing certain things that are we're starting to see that the world is not that what we have done to the earth in terms of thinking ourselves very modern has not kind of conquered it has damaged it greatly but that it is a incredible mechanism a self-regulating mechanism that is going out of whack and here are the different signs and 
Some of them look amazing and we were tempted to go, oh, a tardigrade on, well, that's not, that's, that's not a bad sign, but oh, look, here's an amazing volcanic explosion or here's, you know, extraordinary light show, light effects, here are the sunset that's sort of look incredible during COVID. We look at a number of those things, patch marks, hunger stones, and go, wow, that's a, that's a really wondrous thing. Here are some fish pulled up from the deep sea. There's a lot of those on online. They are fantastic, all the creatures that are emerging out of the permafrost. Endlessly fascinating. But these are also signs. And once upon a time, the ancients would have taken very serious notice of changes in the movements and migration of animals or a flight of birds or natural phenomena. And are we brighter for thinking oh, that can be conquered in some way? Or are we any brighter in thinking we are too modern to, to listen to these things? Mm. So I think my work's doing all that. But I would be, I guess, my, I guess this kind of comes out of my fiction that I'm always interested in writing fiction in not in having what I, I think of sounds very grand as kind of structures of humility mm. in in my writing so I don't necessarily want to say this is exactly how things were I'm always interested in the again the different technologies or different ways that, that sort of people see the world and I like having a stage distance I like talking about what we can't know <laughs> and mm. how we can't even know other people so that's why I'm sort of backing back from that idea of translation because I mm. think that what I'm doing is mapping or staging and sort of trying to draw attention to certain aspects that I think don't see when we live in a you know, what I call in the book as well, a kind of a universe of glamour. One of the things I'm really say in the book is that we writers are kind of doing our thing over here and, and scientists and environmentalists and so forth. And then there's this incredible structure of glamour that, and language of glamour that we see in advertising and on so many TV shows and anything aspirational where there's this idea that things can always be improved upon, juged, exchanged, can always find that lovely Tuscan farmhouse or that, that deserted island, that African safari that can always find some sort of bit of clear air. There's this fantasy world, I think, that we constantly see, which is so compelling which is the world of glamour. So I suppose my, my book is kind of a, an anti-glamour, <laughs> a cry to de-glamorise rather than to, to translate. And that was Hayden Spurrell in conversation with Delia Falconer. I'd like to thank Delia for joining us as part of the Literature and Ideas podcast which aims to bring together our brightest writers, artists and thinkers. Find out more at rmit.edu.au forward slash culture. The production team for this episode of the Literature and Ideas podcast was Anthea Yang, Chris Alfonso, Hayden Spurrell and Lauren Webster. The supervising producer was Carly Godden.